Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on the show, Irish actress Neve Algar and Oscar-winning director Sebastian Lelio on their new movie, The Wonder. All about a seemingly miraculous fasting girl who hasn't eaten for four months in the post-famine Midlands of Ireland in the 1860s. The peculiar sensation of being Pat Inglesby. We look at an insightful new documentary about the well-known poet. Plus, BAFTA-winning actress Gina McKee on her role in the star-crossed lover story My Policeman, starring Harry Styles. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on News Talk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well and life is treating you well. I just want to quickly tell you, I didn't really get chatting to you last week because me and Mark Ryle were deep in horror movies, but I've bored you many times with my Everton fandom. I just want to quickly tell you that I took my 10-year-old, my eldest boy, to Goodison Park two Saturdays ago and we beat Crystal Palace 3-0 remarkable stuff. Uh, Often you go to Everton matches, you go 1-0 up and you're just hanging on, praying it will last and you'll make it to the finish line in front. This was a different kind of Everton. We were all over them. And this isn't a sports show, but you know, my 10-year-old, I think the die may be cast now. He went to Goodison Park and he saw them hammer another team. So, you know, I, I, I've, I think I've successfully given him the toffee disease for life. Here's hoping. Anyway, I uh, want to mention last week's show, that the horror special that we did, me and Mark Royal. People seem to enjoy it. Uh, we've got a lot of correspondence, which is great. And a lot of people particularly still talking about how well The Exorcist still works all these years later, f- nearly 50 years later. The Exorcist is still a chilling film. I know someone who watched it for the first time uh, as a result of the show and, and were blown away by it. So, you know, that's a, a testament to the lasting appeal of that movie. But one correspondence I did get, correspondence, I sound like I'm in a Jane Austen novel, but one email we got was from Sinead Lynn in Mayo, Kilalea in Mayo. We were talking about the the exorcist and I couldn't momentarily remember the actor's name who played the priest, Father Damien Jason Miller. She said that he's actually her father's second cousin and he visited us in the 80s and she remembers him talking about films, but they hadn't a clue who he was. So there you go. So related to Jason Miller. So thank you for that, Sinead, Lynn and Mayo and to all the people who got in touch about uh, their favourite horror movies and our screen time special on the best horror movies. We'll do another theme show soon uh, because a lot of people enjoy them. Now, this week I was watching this. Ladies and gentlemen, Now, that is a tiny clip from the playlist, which is on Netflix. And it's a very tiny clip because the whole thing is in Swedish or largely in Swedish. The playlist has been on Netflix since, I think, October 13th. And it's all about the founding of Spotify, who you heard there. There's a fictionalized, and I think it's highly fictionalized, even though it's based on a book about the trajectory of Spotify. It's all about Daniel Elk who is the guy who largely invented Spotify. He finds an opportunity 
in the early noughties when Pirate Bay and Napster, sites like that, that were putting up music for free, he finds himself in that time when music piracy is really hitting the record companies hard and he sees a solution. Uh, and of course, it's Spotify to build a free and legal streaming service along with his business partner Martin Lawrenson. This is really good. This is six episodes and it's obviously making points about what tech can do to things like the music business, what the music business does to musicians, whether or not an artist should be paid for their music, which one would think they should be, uh, if enough money goes from these streaming sites to the artists, if the record companies make enough, if the record companies have traditionally made too much and are still making too much. There's all those you know stories at play in this and, and, and points about what technology does to creativity. But it's a pretty compelling slash entertaining drama because what it does is over the six episodes, it's told from different perspectives of people who were involved in Spotify's success. So episode two is about an executive who's terrified of file sharing. He's, I think he's the fictionalized head of Sony and he realizes that he's probably going to have to get into bed with Spotify. There's an episode about the app's chief coder uh, who's battled and strives for the perfection of the app and just wants it to be this diamond of music apps. There's an episode about the lawyer who kind of laid the groundwork for the compromise with the record labels. But what's really good about it is kind of every episode ends with one of the characters going, that's not how it happened. And there's kind of a retelling and a moving on of the story from a different person's character. So it's really well done. It's really entertaining. And the last episode is a real trip. It wasn't, I don't think, where anyone would expect it to go. So the playlist, now streaming on Netflix, a really good watch, a meaty watch that I think you'll find very entertaining, even if you don't have any interest in the politics of who owns music or anything like that. It's just a good piece of drama, maybe slightly akin to something like The Social Network. Well worth a watch, according to me. And you are listening to Screen Time here on News Talk. Let me know if you've watched the playlist or anything. You can email us screentime at newstalk.com or I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy. Now, I quickly want to tell you about something wonderful that's happening next weekend, the 11th to the 13th of November, the brand new film festival, Dingle Distillery International Film Festival. That's when it takes place. The festival will screen 82 films from 23 countries, making it a very international event, including 30 Irish movies to showcase the incredible talent we have here, of course. Now, one of the things in particular that, is really intriguing about this festival is the master classes because there's a couple of master classes that if you've an interest in cinema and maybe even working in cinema you won't want to miss the wonderful and amazing director john sales who gave us all sorts of things but for one movie alone he should be forever hailed and that's lone star he's going to deliver an acting master class another must is a great cinematographer owen mcpollen who worked on game of thrones penny dreadful and then there's another brilliant master class where you have the great casting director Roz hubbard talent agent lorraine brennan talent agent josh muldoon and claire mcginley they're going to present nuts and bolts of acting as a career getting an agent self-taping coping with rejection of which there is much uh dealing with fan mail staying sane so 
Dingle Distillery International Film Festival, which is taking place the 11th to the 13th of November next weekend, has brilliant movies, but has brilliant masterclasses with some great people. Uh, And of course, if all that wasn't enough, it's taking place in the gorgeous setting of Dingle. I was only there four weeks ago on another assignment, and there's something special. There's something special in that place. So that is the Dingle Distillery International Film Festival taking place next weekend. Now, take a listen to this. It's not your job to question us. You are here only to watch. The watch is to last two weeks. We are proposing eight-hour shifts. There is to be no conferring between the two of you. On the 14th day, you will each present your separate testimony. May I ask, gentlemen, no one has told me what precisely is wrong with the girl. Anna O'Donnell doesn't eat. How long exactly has it been since the last time the girl ate? Four months. That's impossible. Yes, now that is a clip from The Wonder. Now, The Wonder is released in Irish cinemas on the 2nd of November. So that was on Wednesday of this week. And then it's going to be on Netflix on the 16th of November. And of course, that dual releasing policy always gives you wonder to think, is there possible Oscar contention? That's generally why movies that are going to be on Netflix get released in the cinema. Or that's part of it. And with this, you could see why. Because The Wonder is a fascinating movie. It's set 13 years after the famine. And it's set in the Midlands of Ireland. It was all filmed in Wicklow. And an English Nightingale nurse, Lib Wright, played by Florence Pugh, is called to the Irish Midlands by a devout community to conduct a 15-day examination over a girl there called Anna O'Donnell, played by Keela Lord Cassidy, young actress, playing an 11-year-old girl who claims not to have eaten for four months, surviving miraculously on manna from heaven. As Anna's health rapidly deteriorates, Lib is determined to unearth the truth, which may be that she is a miracle or maybe something else that's going on. And she's challenging the faith of a community that would prefer to stay believing. It's directed by the Chilean director and screenwriter Sebastian Lelio, who's an Oscar winner for his movie A Fantastic Woman in 2017. He also did a great movie called Disobedience. It's adapted from the Emma Donoghue novel. Emma Donoghue, of course, wrote Room and she wrote the novel that it's based on all about the phenomenon of these fasting girls, which I hadn't heard about until I was watching and reading about this movie, where at this time, this was a common enough occurrence, people claiming to not have eaten for months on end. Now, it stars Florence Pugh. It also stars Neve Algar, who is close to the family of this girl. She's what's called a slavey, who was basically a kind of hired hand for help, who works with a family, a woman who wasn't married, who didn't have her own children. Neve Algar is, I think, the most common guest on this show. This will be her fourth appearance. She has been in great movies and TV shows, everything from Cam with Horses to The Virtues on TV, Deceit. Last year, she spoke to us about a brilliant horror movie called Censor, all about these 
video nasties in the 80s and she played a film centre. She's a brilliant, brilliant actress. So, I got to meet both Sebastian Lilo, the director of The Wonder, and also Neve Algar in the Shelburne earlier this week. And I should mention, the movie begins in a fascinating way with Neve Algar's character talking not to the camera, but you hear a voiceover and you see the film set before we begin the movie. And she begins by saying, this is the beginning of a film called The Wonder. And you're not sure if she's in character or not. It's a great movie and and, and an intriguing movie. So here is my chat with Sebastian Lelio, the director and also the actress Neve Algar. So Sebastian, if I can start with you, acclaimed Oscar-winning Chilean director shows up in Wicklow to make a movie set around the famine about a girl who may be a miracle or blah, blah, blah. It just seemed almost incongruous to me that this was your next choice of a movie. I'm awfully glad you made it, but I'm wondering, how did it all start for you? What has you here talking to me in the Shelburne Hotel today? Well, I think the love for Emma Donoghue's novel. I really, I really loved the story, the characters she created, the, amaz- the amazing journey of those characters, um, the themes, mm-hmm. you know, behind this uh, heavily charged historical moment um, that I got to learn a lot about. And um, especially, you know, the, 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 the clash, the collision between reason and religion mm-hmm. and put in, on different terms between... Um, rational thinking and mag- magical thinking. Mm-hmm. I, th- I thought all those elements um, making the context for this very unique relationship between um, these two women that find themselves, you know, uh, Florence's character, uh, the nurse, Lip Wright, and the little girl at the center mm-hmm. of everything, the mir- miraculous girl or, mm-hmm. or not. And that sort of sorority that de- generates between them that maternal um, love that generates between them and the fact that they have to save each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that, that was a, an amazing, an amazing territory to 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 explore through film, and also like a big, uh, big enough of a problem to get yourself into as a filmmaker. Yeah, and were you aware of the Irish situation in terms of our history with the famine and the Catholic Church? Like you're a man of the world, but we're too aware of that nearly here in Ireland. We think about it all the time. But was that something you had heard of before? Yes, I had some notions. Okay. I, I didn't know much. I would say my, my first real education about it came from reading uh, Emma's novel. Okay. But one of the reasons why I doubt of making the film was precisely the, you know, the paradoxes yeah. of... Uh, being a storyteller that's coming from a different culture, a, a different background, and dealing with such a delicate, painful moment in Irish history. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, I, I thought a lot about it in terms of, should I do it? Do I have the moral authorization to do it? And then, but you know, um, I'm not going to say that back then, Ten years after the famine, the situation was a dictatorship. That's not what I will say. But I grew up in the south of Chile, in very, um, in a very green, very green landscapes, in a very macho dictatorship, extremely Catholic. Mm. So, apart or behind the cultural specificities that 
Emma's novel was so beautifully exposing the dynamics, the power dynamics, I thought I, 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 I could relate to them. Mm -hmm. It yeah. reminded me of my, of my childhood, uh, okay. saving all the distances. So yeah, I think that's, what's, that's one of my ways into sure. starting to, to think that I might, I could do this, you know? Well, you certainly could. Hello, Neve. Nice to see you again. It's fascinating the way the film starts, and maybe this is a question for Sebastian, but I'm curious, yours is the first voice we hear, and I don't agree with any spoilers or anything, but we see a set, and then you're, you're into the movie, and then occasionally you come back to talk to us as your character, but I'm not sure if you're your character at the very start of the movie. Uh, what's going on there, or, or can you say? Yeah, so Sebastian has created this framing device of inviting the audience in and, and asking them to invest in this story, in, the, in these characters, as much as the characters are invested in their, own, in their own tales. And it's that idea of why we choose to tell stories. It's a way of, of understanding the world. It's a way of, of, in a way, escapism, the idea of why we tell ourselves stories and what stories mean to us and kitty is who's in the story is is you know she's part of this of this family of this community who who have belief in in god because for them they've gone through you know it's a time just after the famine where the church is you know such a heavy presence within community and faith was something that you know people needed to latch onto in order to to get by in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you you have this amazing character who's also reminding you that, see, just for that moment, you did get lost in the story. Yeah. And it takes you mm -hmm. takes you out of it. So it's the idea of going, it's a little, I, like this lovely wink at saying, yeah. see, you too can get lost momentarily. <laughs> yeah. And how did that make you feel? And I thought that when I read it, in the in the script when I read it the first time I was like this is amazing I haven't I haven't had this opportunity to do something like this and I haven't seen it being done before and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly but you're, I thought she was a sister but technically she's what's called a slavey is that right or, or what is a slavey that so my understanding of a slavey is, is someone who is not married has you know doesn't have any children of mm. her own and is, is essentially belongs to the family okay and you know Kitty is very much someone who is trying to, I suppose, bridge the old world of women who, you know, if they have no education, if they have no purpose, but, you know, where do they, where do they sit mm -hmm. in society? And you can kind of see this character who's slightly trying to, you know, educate herself, learning to read so that maybe perhaps she could learn new stories mm -hmm. instead of being told, yeah. told stories. And then, you know, when you, when you educate yourself, you can make your mind about things. And so... Yeah. There's all those little little nods of like how how women had had very few prospects yeah, at that time. Of course, did not to be light about it, but you you hold a shovel very well. Did you did you learn to cut turf and dig turf? Because I remember talking to you before, and you learned to box for a film, and you you go full method. It seems. <laughs> well, no, it's just that you get you get the brilliant opportunity where you get an email from production going so just before uh, we're going to shoot one of the scenes tomorrow we're going to bring you in for a rehearsal and like you know the the email heading is is bog cutting rehearsal <laughs> and you're kind of going like this is why I love my job because I get like 
random emails like this where I'm being, you know, paid to go into a field with a guy called Martin Walsh into the bog and learn how to, you know, I'm learning a new skill. And so I picked up a new skill thanks to Sebastian. You know, the famine obviously had to do with food. And I, I was thinking, and this was in my head, are you saying something as well about women and food uh because you know and i don't want to start talking about anorexia necessarily but that popped into my head once or twice was that a theme you're exploring in the movie or is that just up for us to decide and i particularly genderize it because it always seems when we talk about food wrongly it is women we talk about primarily and their intake and outtake of food well i think in this case um you know emma was particularly obsessed or, or interested in the uh phenomenon of the fasting girls that happened in many European countries and uh, it's now considered a sort of precedent of eating disorders. Um, Back then they were always girls Mm -hmm. so why 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 was it like that? I don't, I don't know. Okay. Back then, it was always also always mixed with some sort of mystical element, mm-hmm. so which made the whole thing more um, particular mm-hmm. and of of its time yeah. as well. Um, as a narrator, for me, um, the theme of uh, hunger became really compelling for well food. Mm-hmm. But also meaning, you know, and these are these are characters like Nif was explaining, that are operating within um, an understanding of the world, mm-hmm. a way of reading the world, a way a way of inhabiting the world mm-hmm. that is um, uh, an inherited story that has been extremely successful and uh, could be true or not. That's mm-hmm. not my jurisdiction, yeah. but it is. Um, you know, it's the in this case the Catholic. Um, interpretation of, uh, let's say, reality. And um, that also becomes, and that, this is where things get interesting, I think, to mm-hmm. analyze, become political power. is also a way of who controls the narrative, controls the community, yeah. right? And uh, we know that more than ever today Absolutely. with social media, fake news, like you blink and there are millions of people believing that the, fl- the, the earth is flat. Uh, and uh, so... Today, the numbers are, are astronomic. So who you believe in and what are you believing in at the moment becomes today extremely urgent politically. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, you have to be responsible for sure. what you believe in. And, and you have to be responsible for the stories you tell, particularly, because I know this movie is all about stories. And if, as Neve says, if stories is how we understand the world, well, we have to be really careful about those stories we tell. Yeah, because, you know, what? one of the things about the framing that I... Um, I want so bad for Neve to be that person that holds the consciousness mm-hmm. of the film. I thought it was beautiful to uh, give a character that maybe is not as central as the other, other two women, but to give her character uh, that role of yeah. being with one, with one um, foot in each mm-hmm. uh, dimension, mm-hmm. right? One is the world of the characters, 1862, and the other one is somehow today. And I think that's really where the, where the wonder happens. It is 1862, quote unquote, but it's also today, mm-hmm. of course. And it's talking about today as well, you know, and uh, it's also saying uh, characters are fictional, but what they represent is not fictional, mm-hmm. is real, has been happening. It happened before 1862, it happened in the area where 
the film takes place. It is happening now and it will continue to happen unless we change the collective story that allows those power dynamics uh, that, you know, allow this sort of situation to, to exist. So it, it all ends up being about the quality of the stories we are capable of, of co-creating mm -hmm. and that we decide to use so our societies can have some sort of cohesion. But yeah, stories as people, I believe, should be flexible, should be capable of evolving. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where rigidity and even fanaticism collides with intellectual and spiritual elasticity. Neve, this is the fourth year in a row that I've spoken to you on this show. So you're the most popular guest to be pleased to hear. But you've managed to make great choices for the last four years. I've never had to interview you about a film or a TV show that I didn't think was great. And there was a piece on our show we were talking about Jessie Buckley, a contemporary of yours, and someone was saying, you know, she never makes bad choices. And I think you're the same. And I wonder, is that a struggle for you? Like. I know you might say, well, no, of course not. I just choose what I want to do. But you're a working actress, so it can be hard sometimes to say no to things, I imagine. But but how do you keep it so you keep turning up in good projects? Because it's not that easy, it seems to me. Uh, first off, thank you. That's <laughs> that was a truth. lovely compliment. Um, it, it, well, I, it, it's funny because I, I got into acting because I was so passionate about storytelling. You know, for me, I, I grew up in the countryside and, and for me, film and television was my escapism. Mm -hmm. it was what, as this, this film points out, it's, it was my way of understanding the world. And I just fell in love with, I fell in love with filmmakers, I fell in love with the, the art of filmmaking. And I don't know, I just, I always want to work with people who are passionate about the work that they make and, um, I'd seen Disobedience, wasn't too long after the, the script um, was sent to me uh, to, by Nina Gold. And, you know, she's one of the, the most incredible casting directors in the world. And it's, you know, I suppose it's having people like Nina, mm -hmm. having cast directors like that who put you in, put you in contact with, with directors like Sebastian. And, you know, it's, it's as, a, as an actor, you're you're the least kind of in control of your career okay. because you're not you're not the one writing it you're not the one who who are kind of at the start of producing these these stories and so it's kind of you know I I watch a lot of movies I'm I'm a I'm a film fanatic and yeah it's just it's sifting through the the filmmakers that I'm very passionate about their work and wanting to to work with them but it's uh, yeah I just have I have a great team of an amazing um, agent who I've I've had from the beginning, and I was very honest and open with him about the type of work I want to to make because we're not here for a long time. It's a good time, and so the work you do make it count and be proud of it. Great. And then finally, Sebastian, just on that, what's I know it's a terrible thing to ask you when you're promoting a film that probably took over your life for two plus years, but what are you going to do next? Well, um, to be honest, I don't I'm, mean today. I mean no, 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 no. I know, I, I know. I, I, uh, I'm preparing a couple of films, but okay. I don't know which one is the one that will happen. So, it's a bit irresponsible for me to okay. to, to say much. Um, but yeah, I'm it's not the next Marvel movie or anything. Though, no, 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 okay. no. Okay. Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, lovely to talk to you both, and the wonder is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much. 
Sebastian Lilio there, the Oscar-winning director of the new movie The Wonder. And you also heard me talking to the great Irish actress Neve Algar, one of the great actresses working today. And The Wonder is in cinemas, was released in cinemas at this stage on the 2nd of November and will be on Netflix from the 16th of November. Up next, the peculiar sensation of being Pat Inglesby. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now Pat Inglesby is a unique figure in Irish life. The poet and TV presenter was the presenter of the fable children's TV show which I know listeners, myself included well I'm the presenter, remember well Pat's chat and he later became a fixture at various posts, yes posts on Dublin Street selling his own books of poetry. A new documentary called The Peculiar Sensation of Being Pat Inglesby is being released on the 4th of November this weekend. The documentary investigates I suppose the idiosyncratic world of Pat with Pat's poems and candid anecdotes bearing witness to his visceral relationship with his beloved Dublin and its many social institution and architectural changes over eight years and looks at his life and the strange life that it has been. It's directed by the acclaimed photographer and filmmaker Seamus Murphy, whose work I know from the great visual collaboration he did with PJ Harvey and in particular the videos for Let England Shake. Seamus joins me in studio now. Seamus, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. Good. I met you outside and I said, let's not get into any of this. I want to ask you all this stuff on air. I did briefly say to you, like a lot of people, I'm in my somewhere mid-40s. I'm not sure which I am. But we knew him from Pat's chat and then I would see him on the streets and stuff like that. And he's this curious figure to lots of people. Is that how you decided to make a movie about him? I I was aware of his persona, you know, back in the day. Um, I was a little bit older than you, and I, you know, so I wasn't watching him like like on television. Yeah. But you know, you were aware of Pat Inglesby. You were aware of this persona, his 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 look. You know, Ferrati was pretty damn groovy in yeah. those two, in the, those days. So he was kind of unique. And um, I was making a short film in 2013 about Dublin, and I thought there's something missing here. And I, th- I thought, you know, that guy Pat Inglesby, and I believe he's selling his books of poetry on the street. Maybe I'll find him. And I found him and um, we got on very well and I love the poetry Mm. and um, it sort of went from there really. Okay. And what I found, well, a lot of things I found fascinating was, and I don't want to give a spoiler if it's such a thing as possible about someone's life story, but, you know, Pat had a very difficult childhood that I certainly wasn't aware of and a strange life with mental health issues in, in the early part of his year and seemed lost for a long time. Was that something you were aware of or did you discover this? I wasn't aware of the details. I knew that he had men- mental health issues. Mm. I think a lot of people knew that. He you know, suffered from depression and was very open about it. I think mm. he's been on television talking about this stuff and that's another reason why I thought he was a very interesting sort of almost spokesman because he was addressing stuff that people in Ireland weren't talking about back in those days. Mm. Um, but I think, yes, he had, a, he had a difficult childhood. It was, I mean, the, the family were, were lovely and, and it wasn't any, anything like that. It was that he was a very sensitive kid, mm-hmm. very sensitive. And I think the, what he would call the Blarney that he was being given by the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. things like the Blessed Trinity. I mean, to a man, to a, to a young man, very intelligent, very sensitive kid, he got very confused. Yeah. And it led to mental health yeah. difficulties. And, um, you know, he spent, I, I, in some ways, he spent his life dealing with that. And, mm-hmm. and, the, and the great thing is, you know, I've, I've met him at the end of his selling on the streets. I, I caught the last few years of that. Yeah. And I think in a way his journey has been coming to terms with himself. Mm. I mean, that's kind of, that is sort of the, the, the arc of the film. And it's, it's something that I discovered as, as I 
started making the film. I mean, the, the funny thing is, to begin with, you know, being Pat, he said, well, I'm not going to be in the film. And I said, okay, right. Well, I was doing this film at that stage with PJ Harvey, and she wasn't going to be interviewed in the film either. Okay. So I, I thought, okay, well, I mean, I can get round Is this that. me or them? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do I attract these people or what? Um, but I thought, okay, I can deal with that. And, I'm, and it, with the short film, I used his poetry, and ne you never saw him. Mm. I thought, okay, I can try and sustain that. But a, a feature film, you know, a feature-length mm. documentary, very difficult. Mm. About somebody, that means you can't really bring in other people to ask them their opinion because, you know, you, you see them, but you don't see him. What's, yeah. wrong, what's wrong here? Yeah. But eventually, um, he agreed to be interviewed. He said, look, I think, I think you should interview me. And by, but by that stage, I had got to know his story because I, I, the initial thing was I was going to record his voice at home reciting the poems. Okay. And, uh, of course, you know, for every poem he recited, there were 10 stories. Yeah. So I started filming that. And um, so I already knew where the film was going to go. The Pat's Chat era in his life, which, you know, he seems to have mixed feelings about now. But, you know, from the inside looking or from the outside looking in, it seemed like a great thing in a way. And, you know, not I should not that we explain Pat's life to him, but I, I think it had, you know, it gave him a certain purchase that, that I think may have helped. But anyway, but what I found fascinating was, and obviously we're a private, non-publicly funded broadcaster, but RTE, he was literally calling up the school principals to get them on himself. Like, they really... I, how did he get in? Because it seemed like the children's department didn't want to borrow of him. Well, I mean, as you, you've seen the film, I mean, he basically kind of... He, he bluffed his way in. Mm. You know, he, he was doing great things in, in, in drama. He was writing plays, yeah. and they got him on the, the Fab Vinny show. Yes. And... Uh, he said, well, I'm, you know, this is an opportunity. I'm going to be on television. People are going to be watching. I want to work. Mm. So he, he, he walked on with a cabbage, uh, you know, <laughs> hanging off one ear and something else hanging off the other. And there was, it was a sensation. And being Pat, he was entertaining and funny mm. and intelligent. And the, apparently the switchboard sort of, you know, who the hell is this guy? He's amazing. Mm. So they couldn't ignore him. You know, it was mm. almost like he, you know, he held them to ransom. And he yeah. sort of went in there and basically sort of got his own little show. And then because the audience, the kids, just loved him so much, the powers that be who didn't want anything to do with Paddy Inglesby. Mm. Paddy Inglesby was too dangerous. You know, he's yeah. too unpredictable for those guys. Um, so he did, he did 10 years of that. Mm. And as he said himself, you know, he was, he, and he doesn't blame them. He says, I don't blame them. You know, I wasn't supposed to be there, but I was there and I was doing it. But they, he, he wasn't supported. Yeah, he yeah. did everything. He, he really you know, wasn't incredible. supported. Yeah. yeah. And, but it was a mixed blessing for him because he was so recognisable and that didn't sit terribly well with him a lot of the time. No, he hates fame. I mean, he, he really, really has. I, I think it's. It, I think it's weirdly tied into his his mental health um, situation. You know, I think it's all about authenticity, and he discovered eventually that Gestalt therapy, this yeah. therapy where you you know you you talk to a chair, your yeah. a chair becomes the person that you are, maybe yourself or maybe your father or yeah. whoever it might be you have a problem with. You can actually address your problems to this chair. You Clint up, Eastwood did it with Barack Obama. Do you remember that? Is that right? Bizarre no. thing. Yeah. No. Anyway, I'm digressing. Oh right. No, that's <laughs> interesting. But but as he says himself in the film, like you know, you end up beating the shit out of the chair because mm -hmm. you know the chair is you know the, all the things that are sort of stopping you doing whatever I think that that what that taught him was that he had to be himself mm -hmm. like what was himself and, mm -hmm. and he went on this voyage of, of discovering that I think the poetry does that poetry is so hotlined hot, hot into, into hardwired into his into his into his mind you know it's straight from his mind onto the page um, I mean, he he works meticulously on on the on the poetry. It's not like he just sort of knocks them out. They sound like 
ordinary speech, mm. but they're really crafty. Yeah. What you do with a lot of the readings of the poem is it's him sitting in his house reading it from the book and it almost felt like he was looking at them for the first time and he was kind of curious about them himself as he read them back, it seemed. Well, th- I think that was natural because the thing okay. is he's got, he had 23 books published, you know, by yeah. himself. I mean, some actually there were some that were published by other people. He had terrible, terrible uh, experiences doing that. That's why he did it himself. Yeah. And um, so I would, I would, I, I, you know, so many poems, I, I knew I had to narrow it down. Yeah. So, so I just sort of went through them with, and with an iPhone. Okay, I like that one. Okay. I like that one. That sounds interesting. Oh, yeah. well, that gives us a good aspect of that. So I ended up with like 150 poems. Went to see him. And some of these poems he hadn't seen in 10, 20 years. Wow. So they were a surprise. Yeah. You're right. They yeah. were a surprise. You know, you mentioned authenticity. You've met plenty of famous people and I've met plenty of actors and and musicians and a lot of people talk about not playing the game but they have to you know Leonard Cohen said something about you know commerce and art they always mix they have to that's how the thing works right but if anyone can justifiably claim to not playing the game it's Pat Inglesby he doesn't have a publisher. He publishes himself. He sells them on the street. And, and you know, you know, the directors of the, of the publishing company is a cat. Yeah, that's or right. That's, his cats, and now that, it's only one that's cat. In the film. So, I mean, is is am I right? Is that your sense? Like he he clearly has no eye for. I don't want to say commerce, but he's not playing the game. He's not playing the game, but he he's actually not bad at commerce. Funnily enough, I okay. mean, he actually he actually worked out a way. He says it in the film. You know, like. I wanted to sell my books. I wanted the books to be out there. I wanted mm. to be a poet and write and sell the books. And I wanted to be out. I wanted to be outdoors and meet people. Mm. He said, well, "What is that? That's the street." Mm. So he he took himself on the street. You know, having literally the the week before been on television as as a sort of so called star, yeah. went out with a black plastic bag, put it on the ground, put his new book out. Um, How's it for you, doctor? And started doing it and started yeah. meeting people. And that was the other thing because by being on the street, by meeting these people that that either they were kind of people that had problems themselves, people that had maybe mental health issues, mm. drug issues, or just people passing. Mm. He, got, he talked to them. And because, he, you know, because he'd been through his own hardship, he had the empathy. And then he, would, he met these people. And he never, never met these people before. He said, you know, it actually exposed him to Dublin in a way he'd never yeah. experienced before. At so this is incredible level. access. Yeah. And for his work, I mean, he spent almost 25 years on the street. That's like a document. That's like a Dickens. Yeah. D- documenting the streets and, and the, you know, the patterns of life in Dublin, it's it's an amazing archive. You know, there's a lady in it. Uh, is she a professor of science who's very taken with him? And Vivian. Vivian, yes. Vivian's and she, an old friend. She, yeah, yeah she, of his. They, they, they discuss poetry. And look, I don't mean to be tabloid about it, but I was trying to figure out, are they in a relationship together? They were. Okay. They were, absolutely. And I didn't sort of start out with that. Because no, I, that, yeah. and, and it's funny, she, she is, she is a... She's a scientist and she's, she's also a graphic artist and she's also a poet. She's a very okay. interesting woman. Yeah. And in fact, she published a book called The Poet about Pat. Mm. And it's a wonderful book, beautiful okay, book. She's right. Swiss. Um, but yes, they were in a relationship. And But, she, you know, a great friend. And in fact, she's now handling his literary archive. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and knows him better than anyone. Right. Um, she's a great, great character. Wonderful. And as I say, forgive the tabloid, but I no, was no, curious. No, I was curious. We're, and we're, I should, we're, all, we're all interested in that. Yeah. I should mention there is a, there's great uh, contributions by Imelda May and Don Baker. So he's some serious supporters. En route to my final question, I want to compliment you in that there are brilliant, I was going to say poetic flights of fancy, but the whole film is intersected with these gorgeous kind of 
visual ruminations on Dublin life, which as a dub, I just, they were wonderful and it's a great way, but it's such a great way of mixing up a profile of someone. It was, it was very well done. Was that always in your head? This can't be beginning, middle and end. We need to jazz this up some way. No, it, 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 was, it was absolutely, I mean, I, you know, making the short film, I did this short film for the New Yorker in 2013 Home is another place. And it was yes. about being away and coming back. And it tied in with, with John F. Kennedy's assassination because okay. it, was, it was the 50th anniversary of that. And I saw Kennedy, I was three, when, when he came through um, Dublin. Oh, so wow. anyway, th- that was what the film, the short yeah, film yeah, was about. Yeah. And I found that um, I'd shot everything in the film before I even met Pat. And yet I was able to put my footage to his poetry. I thought, well, this is this is a way to work. I don't, yeah. I don't want to be sort of slavishly trying to illustrate his poems. They're far more interesting than that. And and also what I was trying to do is I was trying to find little stories that were, that were unique mm. on on their own. But if you had poetry with them, there'd be another another parallel mm. story going on. Um, so that was always in my head to okay, do that. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, it works brilliantly. Listen, and you know, you're not here to talk for Pat, but I was left with just a slight, well, a, a big wondering. Where is he at now, and how is he? He's he's great. He's still writing. Yeah. Um, he's not not as mobile as he used to be. Okay. You know, he's got problems. He had polio as a child, yeah. which we talk about in the film, and that's come back to sort of bite him yeah. in later age. He's going to be there tonight at at the um, at the screening. Brilliant. You know. Um, you has know, he seen it yet? He has, and okay. he loves it. And, okay. and the funny thing is, I didn't show him. I didn't show him any of it until it was done because <laughs> no because I learned I learned you know I'd be going out to see him and like hey Paddy you know, I've just I've just done this thing in town I'm really happy and I'd, I'd explain and go like that sounds like rubbish <laughs> I mean that just sounds boring and then he'd ring me up later and say like, I'm really sorry I'm always making these judgments you know what do I know I haven't even seen it so I thought no I'm not yeah. going to show him anything until it's done and if he hates it then you know we can talk about it but you know yeah, yeah. so he, he, lo- he loves it he loves it Listen, you're a fascinating guy to talk to. We haven't even got to PJ Harvey. Unfortunately, our time is next up, time. so maybe the next time. Next but time. I want to tell people the peculiar sensation of being Pat Inglesby is on general release on the 4th of November. It is delightful and particularly, well, no, even if you didn't grow up with Pat Inglesby, it is a great, great watch. I was talking to its director, Seamus Murphy. Seamus, thanks a million. Thank you, John. I've just cleared a space on my floor. It's ready to receive 2,000 more copies of poems so fresh and new, Yahoo. The van arrives at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. I will help the man. Together we will walk in and out, in and out to the van. He will wheel and I will carry. We will sweat. My forehead under my arms will be wet. It'll be worth it. When he's gone, I look at my new blue and white book mountain all along the wall of my sitting room and say to myself, here we go again. My poems, I write them, I publish them, I love them. They keep me alive. I sell them through the shops, I sell them in the street. My face and my arms are brown from the sun. Tonight I lie awake for a long time, excited. Like Christmas Eve, a long time ago, my books are coming in the morning. The unmistakable voice of Pat Inglesby there reading one of his poems as featured in the great documentary The Peculiar Sensation of Being Pat Inglesby which is on release this Friday in cinemas, in select cinemas and you heard me talking to its very articulate and interesting director Seamus Murphy and do also check out his videos uh, his videos that he's done for PJ Harvey Great stuff Altogether. Up next, we look at the continuing saga of Harry Styles in the cinema with the release of My Policeman.
Now you're welcome back to the third and final part of Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show, and I'm John Fardy. Now the big new streaming release of the week is undoubtedly My Policeman on Amazon. Now My Policeman got a limited cinema release and it's the continuing adventures of Harry Styles as an actor, I would suggest, because in the movie Harry Styles plays a charming policeman in 1950s Britain and he gets, befriends a girlfriend, Marion, played by Emma Corrin, who was a previous guest on this show as she played the young Princess Diana in the last season of The Crown. And the two of them begin a relationship, but they strike up a friendship with Patrick, played by David Dawson, a very suave museum curator. And Tom and Patrick begin a romantic affair, and it turns out that Tom, possibly unbeknownst to himself, is gay. And because it's the 1950s, a strange love triangle emerges where Tom is keeping the affair very, very secret. And the action moves then, very interestingly, to the 1990s, where something has happened to this relationship of the 50s and Patrick has had a stroke and Marion, who's now played by the great English actress Gina McKee, and Patrick is played by Rupert Edward, has taken Patrick back in. And he, as I say, he's had a stroke and she insists on caring for him. But Tom, who she's still married to, finds this very difficult and, and refuses to speak to him and is full of rage. Tom, the, the older Tom, is played by another great English actor, Linus Roach. And the movie is a tale of, I suppose, star-crossed love to a certain extent without giving anything away. And the twin storytelling device of what happens to them in the 1950s and what happens to them in the 1990s is very well done. Harry Styles is very good in it. I mean, to me, the jury may be out as to what kind of actor he is. I mean, I thought he was grand in Don't Worry Darling, the one that caused all the kerfuffle at Cannes. But he's very good in this. And as a guy who is torn between the life he thinks he wants and, and the love that he wants, uh, he's very good in it. So it's a thumbs up for me from my policeman. Now, as I mentioned, Gina McKee plays Marion in the 1990s when she's an older woman. And she's the one trying to maybe find some solace or some closure to this bizarre love triangle that they've engaged in. Gina McKee is a brilliant actress. She has this wonderful ethereal, enigmatic quality. You will know her from all sorts of things. She won a BAFTA for Our Friends in the North. She's been in movies like The Phantom Thread and In the Loop. She was famously Hugh Grant's ex-girlfriend in Notting Hill, the lady who's in the wheelchair in the movie. She's been in The Bodyguard and The Line of Duty, a brilliant, as I say, BAFTA-winning actress. So I got to talk to her earlier in the week about her role in My Policeman and a bit more besides. Marion's a wonderful character, uh, both as a younger lady and then one who's maybe 20 years older. I was going to say older, but definitely not, but certainly older than when we first see her. But it strikes me that she's the catalyst for most of the stuff that happens in the movie in a certain sense and certainly change that comes to Tom and Patrick's life in the second half of their lives. Is that how you see her? I can understand why you see that because some of two of the major things that Marion instigates are, are seismic and 
perhaps you could say cataclysmic. But I think one of the things that really drew me to the script is that you have this triangle of people, these three people who meet when they're young in the 1950s. And the things that bring them together and pull them apart, mark them for the rest of their lives. But all three of them are in this linked triangle and they all do things with and to one another, which, um, how can I put it? One incident informs the next. And so mm. um, they are victims of their time, but within that, the actions that they take against one another mark them forever and evermore throughout the four decades when they are reunited in order to face the past. Yeah, one has to be one has to be very careful about spoilers when you describe this. But there's there's something so sad about you know I don't want to say doomed romance, but 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 you know the the, the clues in the synopsis of the film, you know. A, a, a gay man in love with another gay man and a woman. This was probably in the 1950s, never going to work out. I mean, in a way, if everything works out great, th there's no there's no real drama. I mean, it's maybe a tragedy of romance, but doomed love is probably makes for the best kind of movies and books, I guess. I think that when, um, obviously, like you say, if something is resolved and happy, then there is little room for drama or certainly sustained drama. And the conflict that they have within themselves and within each other is really the meat and potatoes of the film. But I wouldn't say doomed. I mm. think that Tom and Marion have a form of love which is valid and strong, but it's not whole. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that, that's a good way of putting it. Sorry, that's the Irish in me, always going to the dark side, doomed love, you know. Let's, <laughs> let's call it slightly, slightly star-crossed, let's say. Tell me this, you know, the, the younger people in the audience, or I suppose everyone will want me to ask, you know, Harry Styles is, you know, people are comparing him to Bowie in terms of all that he can do and how successful he's become, both as a musician and now as an actor. It occurs to me, though, you certainly don't have any scenes with him, and I hope that's not a spoiler because you're you're playing different facets of the same person's life at different stages. But I I don't know. Were you you know telling your friends I'm going to be in a movie with Harry Styles, and then you're not actually on set with him? Was that any source of disappointment? Or um, I there is a few. Well, partly we need to establish that it was shot in 1920. Uh, sorry, not 2021. <laughs> sorry, I went into a time machine now. So we shot That's it in okay. 2021. So obviously there was COVID protocols in place. Yeah. So we never we had we our bubbles were the younger cohort and the older cohort. And so mm. we didn't meet, except Harry is an exceptional person. And one day when we were doing camera tests, he came to introduce himself to us all which um, was a taste of how decent and well-adjusted and generous-spirited he is. He's a really, really fantastic person. And then there was later in the shoot, there was a time when we explored a few different things and we did shoot some stuff together. Okay. But, um, it, an exploration, if let's say. And then also we met doing some publicity in Toronto because we had our world premiere at the Toronto Film Festival. So we've met a few times, but it really has just been a few times. Um, but what I've seen of Harry is very impressive. He's a really special person. 
tell me this. Uh, you have been doing this a long time now. You started quite young and, and, and you've continued to act. I interviewed, uh, sorry, this is a shameless name drop, but Idris Elba a couple of weeks ago. And I was saying to him, whenever you read stuff about you, people always talk about your presence. And I noticed when I was reminding myself of your career this morning, a lot of people describe you as eth- ethereal. Uh, in your performance, and and I, I like, and that's I, that's a beautiful thing to say, I think. Or 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 do you take that as a compliment? Because because I know what they mean. I guess I'm asking, do you agree with that, and where do you think it comes from? It's really hard to um, have that objectivity about yourself. And I can so imagine. I, I can imagine. So I suppose what I do is I try not to engage with it too much in a way because I don't know really what to do with that. Um, I I guess I can understand it. I think sometimes maybe it's because I'm interested often in dramas about the nonverbal communication. And mm-hmm. I think in terms of visual media, films and TV, it's the best medium to explore that. And I think often what we don't say to each other, but what we're communicating is where a lot of interesting stuff lies. And I do find myself working on that quite a bit when I'm working. So maybe there's something in that. I don't know. Yeah, that's very interesting. Most people ask you about Notting Hill and I'm not going to. So maybe that'll that'll be a relief. <laughs> I had the experience of interviewing Simon Callow a couple of months ago and I could see his eyes glaze when I mentioned four weddings and funeral. But one thing I did want to ask you about, and this may be Wikipedia getting it wrong, but it says that you received an honorary doctorate from the University of Sunderland the same day that Irish footballing legend Niall Quinn did. Is that true? It is true. I did. And he was lovely, genuinely lovely. So was it was his wife, too. And he um, got a standing ovation, which went on and on and on and on. Because <laughs> uh, if I remember rightly, he had donated. Um, what is it when they do that match when you're finishing your career? I can't remember oh, a testimonial. It. Yeah, a testimonial. Very much. Yeah, I think he donated the testimonial money from his match to uh, Sunderland Hospital. Um, So he's obviously a fairly decent person and he was lovely. Uh, It was a great honour to meet him. Okay, okay. Well, that that sounds like the correct answer when you're talking to one Irish man about another one. So I do appreciate that. And you mentioned standing ovations. I hope my policeman gets plenty of them up and down the length of cinemas and indeed homes when it launches on Amazon because it's a, it's a great piece of work and it was lovely to talk to you, Gina. Thanks. Really nice to talk to you too. Take care. This love is all-consuming. I pity people who don't know what it feels like to be this in love. Come with me, just you and I. He's trying to destroy our marriage. No hiding, no lies. You know nothing about being married to stop telling me what I'm supposed to think about it. A clip there from My Policeman, which is now streaming on Amazon as of the 4th of November, Amazon Prime. And before that, you heard me talking to the great Gina McKee, the wonderful actress, English actress, who has been in all sorts of things, but she is in My Policeman. That is it. 
for this week. Next week on the show, Mark Ryle will be back. He was off this week with all that was going on. I will also be talking to Nora Toomey of Cartoon Saloon about the Cartoon Saloon's great new film, My Father's Dragon, coming to Netflix. And we will be looking at the great career of Walter Hill, the Hollywood Maverick director who gave us things like 48 Hours and The Warriors. All of that is next week. Thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Have a safe week ahead. Take care.